Let's start with prayer. O Heavenly King, the comfort of the Spirit of Truth, for us ever present to fill us all things, treasure your blessings and give of life, come and abide in us and cleanse us from every impurity and save our souls a good one. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Kristen Gianna. Okay. Let's start with uh, the reading. Did anyone uh, have any questions from the reading? We'll start there. Yes. I've got a quick question. So there's a part during the great entrance where I think you say something about all Orthodox Christians and then people say something and I couldn't figure out where What are they saying? <clears throat> Does anybody know what the great entrance is? Can somebody... When we have a great, like, it's the big entrance as opposed to the small entrance, right? It's where the bread and wine uh, that have been prepared come out into the people and then are brought back onto the altar. What are people mumbling or what are you trying to discern? They're saying, may the Lord God remember your priesthood and his kingdom always now and ever into ages of ages. Uh, some churches do that, other churches don't. That's more of a, a Slavic practice. You'll never hear that at a Greek church. Uh, that is a inner altar thing. I say, when I walk in, the first thing I say to the deacon is, may the Lord God remember your diaconate in his kingdom. And he says, may the Lord God remember your priesthood in his kingdom. So it's basically like we've commemorated everybody, but then the, the, the clergy like commemorate, like remember each other. This is all with the bishop was here. The divine liturgy, the actual, like what we experience on a Sunday morning is not... I would say it's not the like type of liturgy, uh, it's not the fullness of the liturgy. What I mean by that is the hierarch or the bishop in a hierarchical liturgy or a pontifical liturgy, uh, that is like the divine liturgy. So what we are doing is an edited form really of actually the full thing. And we're not going to talk about a hierarchical liturgy because you will see that maybe once every year or once every two years or something like that, okay? Uh, but the remnants of all of that or like because of that, there are things that happen in the liturgy that make sense because of that, right? So, for example, the great entrance, the deacon would, instead of going into the altar and, like, kneeling by the altar, he would be bringing the gifts to the bishop, who would be standing there, and, hand, and, he's, and he says, May the Lord God remember your high priesthood in his kingdom. And then the bishop commemorates people, specifically whoever the primate is of the church, the metropolitan, and then the synod of bishops, uh, so that's where that comes from is that there's this sense of like we're all remembering uh, who we're praying for but specifically there, when the bishop is presiding because this is his church I am basically blessed to serve here uh, I am attached to this altar but I serve at the pleasure and the blessing of the bishop uh, so it is he who is the leader of the liturgy it is not me uh, I basically stand in his place when he's not here because he put me as the rector to stand in that place, right? So everything that we do uh, has a blessing from the bishop to do it. There's standard operating proceedings. It's not like he goes through a long list and says, this is blessed, this is blessed, this is blessed, right? But uh, the church, for example, the parish could have desires for who the priest is, but the bishop is the one who finally makes the decision. But 
like any marriage, like a guy who's just going around making all the decisions uh, is probably going to blow up his marriage, <laughs> right? Without like getting good informed consent and like working together with the wife, it's the same way. The bishop is not, he could act like a tyrant, but that's not a good way to do things. Uh, the, the liturgy itself, uh, for us, the divine liturgy, the divine work uh, of God, does anyone know what the word liturgy means? Hopko gives it a definition, but I, I want to expand that and give it a little bit more historical background. Does he remember how he defines liturgy? He said, no, I think it was the Eucharist was Thanksgiving. Is the Eucharist is Thanksgiving, yes. But what, when we say divine liturgy, we don't say mass. We say divine liturgy. Public work. It's a public work. So the divine liturgy is the work of God for, for us. In the ancient Roman world, a liturgy was, let's say, you all are familiar with Roman aqueducts? Uh, those didn't just appear. Uh, those were also were not derived from a great tax base. And then, you know, you have the local Roman civil servants, like, going out there. And, the, you know, that what, what you had is somebody of means gives money and then basically sponsors a liturgia to build the aqueduct. Right? So... What when we are coming together and doing it's not you'll hear this in a lot of places that uh, liturgy means the work of the people. It does not mean the work of the people as in like everybody gets to like have a, a part in the liturgy and like everyone like we make sure that everyone is included in the sense of like make sure they have a part because that's how a lot of people use liturgy. That's not actually what liturgy means. Liturgy does not mean all of us get together and then together we, we do this work for God. It's, it's literally the opposite. It is God doing a work for on our behalf for us so at the very beginning of the liturgy if you've ever wondered what i'm doing with my hands up <laughs> uh with the gates shut uh my I, we are starting which basically oh heavenly king the comfort the spirit of truth right ever present and then uh O lord open thou my lips and my mouth shall show forth thy praise O lord open thou my lips and my mouth shall show forth thy praise uh and then uh the deacon will say it is time for the lord to act because it is God operating and acting through the liturgy upon us. I think I ended the last class talking about uh, that when we come to services, we kind of have this sense of like, I'm bringing what I am bringing, uh, which is true. Uh, I think part of the takeaway from Zacchaeus going up in the sycamore tree is uh, you get out of the encounter with Christ what you put into it in the sense of like, if you uh, stayed up till three in the morning and we're drinking all night, and you rolled in here, you're going to be probably still drunk. Uh, you're not going to be able to get. And we could, I could even just cut out, like, drinking. You know, there's all sorts of other things you could get yourself into, and all week you've just been on a high of anger, or what, whatever that is. You're going to come to liturgy, and you're going to get out of it what you've prepared your heart to receive, right? So the reality of God's work for us is something that we have to... It's not that we're supposed to like work ourselves into a frenzy to get to that place, but we basically need to actually have our hearts. It's just like in our relations with other people, right? Like, if we're actually going to be able to encounter somebody else, we have to actually make the space in our heart to be able to encounter them. So it is God who is acting through the liturgy on us. We come, we assemble, we are active, we're present, but our participation is joining in with the prayers and with the singing. Uh, it, it is not that every single person gets to like 
carry a candle or make sure that every single person is like included because the reality of what of the divine liturgy is you are there and your participation is worship we all have our parts to play in that but the worship of the triune god is what we're there for any other questions basically i'm using the questions to kind of talk in general and then we're going to start going through the liturgy yeah please on the handout this little symbol is that what we're supposed to do? The sign of the cross? There's like a little I'm not used to this handout. bullet point thing. <coughs> it's like peppered all through it, and I, it looks like that's oh, what the it's the for. Size? Oh, the italicized? No, no. Yes. Okay. Yeah, a little diamond thing. Okay. As I told you before, I think, or I mean, like, there's traditions and there's traditions. Like, we do not, you, you do not have to, there are certain points where you don't. When the royal doors are open, uh, and this is something I probably need to just remind the congregation, like, you really don't, you shouldn't really be in the center of things and kissing icons and lighting candles. You need to step back and let, because there's, when the doors are open, the royal doors, that means things are coming out of it, right? So that means basically move out of the way, <laughs> because things are going to be happening. Uh, but basically, when the Trinity is invoked, when you uh, are encountering Christ when you have a moment of repentance, like all these are times to make the sign of the cross. One time that you do not have to make the sign of the cross, if you want to, okay, but like when you are being sensed by a sensor, or when I am blessing you, you don't need to make the sign of the cross. You are being blessed by the sensor, and you're being blessed by me making the sign of the cross. You don't need to cross yourself. I'm crossing you, right? It's just like when you ask for a blessing, like you don't have to make the sign of the cross and then ask for a blessing. I'm going to, like the cross is going to be put over you with the, the giving of the blessing. Any other questions? Even practical questions? And then I will launch off into the deep. <laughs> that made yes. me think of uh, when you're talking about venerating icons. I know you said that we can venerate the icons that are over on the side when we first come in. But then I see people going up at different times to venerate the ones up front. And when is the proper time to do that? Or should you we mean like on the iconostasis? Uh, not just those, but the ones that are on the, the, the three that are, The yeah. central and the... Uh, basically, it is fine. I would say when the royal doors are open, you shouldn't go do things in the middle of the church. Okay. I'd also say, and this is something I need, I, I'm just trying to find either in a homily. The challenge with saying things in homilies or etiquette-wise or things is because not everybody's here. So I say something and then the people who might need to hear it aren't actually here because they're not here. <laughs> so sometimes you do a dismissal. Uh, like, when the gospel is being read, you can wait to go to the bathroom. <laughs> the gospel is being read. You don't need to move around. If you go to the movie theater, you can sit for two and a half, three hours. Most of you Right? Like, unless you have a, a situation or a thing that you need, like, I get it, but it's, it's the gospel is being read. There, there is a sense of, like, you don't move, and you listen and pay attention to what is going on with the gospel. Uh, I would say it's the same with the epistle. Uh, and I would say the same when the anaphora starts. Don't, don't leave. Is anyone wondering what the anaphora is? Did everybody read? Yeah, look at the piece of paper in front of you. There, there's the anaphora. That's okay. <laughs> the anaphora is basically the prayers for the transformation of calling down the Holy Spirit over the bread and the wine. So, shall we... Any other practical questions? 
practical questions are good because they almost inevitably tie into all sorts of other reasons why we do things or how, how we're doing them. Okay. When we were talking about um, the layout of the church and I was talking about temple worship and the connection uh, that Christian worship has with temple worship, uh, I hope that has stuck in your mind uh, because it should make things click for you in what we're doing and why we're doing certain things. Uh, the reality of Orthodox worship uh, is something that is from the very beginning. We are entering into the presence of God, which means we are at his, in his throne room. Uh, this is the vision from the very beginning uh, in Genesis, uh, through the prophets, why God had the tabernacle and then the temple, the priesthood and all of this. These were all things given to Israel for his presence, for his guidance, for his commandments, uh, for the worship of the true God. So our worship very much mirrors and is rooted in uh, what was happening in the Old Testament. Uh, has anyone read the book of Revelation? What, what, what is going on? Well, I shouldn't say broadly what is going on in Revelation because there's tons of stuff going on in the book of Revelation. But the very beginning, what, what happens in the very beginning of the book of Revelation? What is John doing? John has a vision. He's taken to the divine throne room. Do you remember what day it is? Uh, the, the Lord's Day. It's the Lord's Day. What is the Lord's Day? Sunday. Sunday, right? This is the day that we will always have divine liturgy unless something crazy happens, right? A bomb goes off and we don't have a building or something, right? Uh, then we might have it at 3 o'clock outside or something, right? Like, if we have the ability to do it. Uh, the divine liturgy is done on Sundays, but it's also done on other days. What John uh, in the Apocalypse, and it's not Revelations, it's Revelation, right? Uh, it's always in movies, they always say Revelations, and it's not Revelations. It is the singular revelation of Jesus Christ, right? John is taken up, uh, he is in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and he is in worship. And if you were to go back and especially read some of those first uh, few chapters, and it comes here and there without all of the angels and the scrolls and the seals being undone uh, later on. Uh, basically, what you're encountering is like Christian worship, the divine liturgy. We are all gathered together. We, have the, we are gathered together with the martyrs, right? Because the martyrs are crying out from underneath the altar. Uh, we have the elders who are putting down their crowns or they're bowing before the, the lamb that is slain before the foundations of the world. Uh, we have uh, all of this is occurring and there's a reason why it says that John is on the Lord's Day and he's taken on the vision. For the Orthodox reading of this, it's basically that he was in liturgy and these are the things that he saw while liturgy was happening, okay? Uh, the divine liturgy is our access to the kingdom of God, which means into the very thr throne room of God. Here, I'll give you an example from uh, the prayer of the hours, which is not doesn't happen in the divine liturgy, but it's happening when you come before the divine liturgy and they're, they're reading the hours. Uh, here's this prayer. Thou who at every season and every hour in heaven and on earth art worshipped and glorified, O Christ our God, long-suffering, merciful, and compassionate, who lovest the just and showest mercy upon the sinner, who caused all salvation through the promise of blessings to come. O Lord, in this hour receive our supplications, direct our lives according to thy commandments. Sanctify our souls, purify our bodies, correct our minds, cleanse our thoughts, deliver us from all tribulations, evil, and distress. Surround us with thy holy angels, that guide and guarded by them we may attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of thine unapproachable glory. 
So throughout this hymn, you have you who always and forever in heaven and on earth earth are worshipped and glorified. Surround us by your angels. Let us approach you. Let us cleanse ourselves. Help us to do these things. Uh, This is the basic attitude towards prayer, but it is especially in the divine liturgy where we ourselves are going to be entering into the throne room. Uh, In your morning and evening prayers, you are standing before the throne of Christ, right? You have access. The heavens are opened up. You have access to Christ. But it is the divine liturgy where God himself is going to uh, make his home with you, right? He is going to feed you. He is going uh, to meet you on the side of the mountain. I'm referencing here uh, Exodus and what uh, Moses' experience with God was. Um, How does uh, the divine liturgy start? What is the starting point? The bells is a good starting point. That, that is a sign that we're getting there. What does the priest intone? The deacon says, bless master. And something then the, the priest... Yes, yeah, something about the kingdom. <laughs> Blessed, is the kingdom. <laughs> Blessed is the kingdom of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and ever and into ages of ages. Amen. Right? We are entering into the kingdom with divine worship. Uh, what is the idea of the kingdom of God? Where does this come from? Jesus. Jesus, yes. Where is Jesus getting it from? Um, his father. His father. Good answer. <laughs> Safe answer. <laughs> I mean, you have the Lord's Prayer, I guess. You have the Lord's Prayer, yeah. With me, if you guess the Old Testament, you're probably going to get the right answer. Is that, yes? Isn't, isn't that the part where it says that he will rule the nations with a rod of iron? So, Psalm 2. So, yes, you have in Scripture, this is all the way back, right? God is king, period. We participate in his kingdom. The problem is, we don't, right? So, this goes back to the very beginning. And the book of Genesis is basically a whole history about how we don't messed up everything, right? Uh, And how we just kind of repeat the same cycles over and over again. Uh, At the very heart, Uh, of the kingdom of God is our obedience, our love, our uh, attachment properly to God and not to the world. What do I mean by that? So what was the sin of Adam and Eve? Disobedience. 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 Right? Eating the fruit. Why couldn't they eat the fruit? Is God some tyrant? Like... Did he just arbitrarily say, like, you can't have the apple, which we have no idea what the fruit is, but let's just go with apple. I like apples. As long as it's not banana. They weren't ready. Because the serpent said, well, God lied. It's not that you would die. And then they actually didn't die. So, like... They did die. But, like, is that, like, the first death? So, what we have with Adam and Eve, (laughs) Eve is lied to by Satan. Uh... He, this serpent image of like this, um, this is all through scripture. There is the image of a serpent, which then becomes a dragon, uh, this behemoth, this, this leviathan, this, this creature that is seeking to destroy, right? It's all through the Psalms. This is why we sing about it, theophany. That's why you look at a lot of depictions of Hades, and it is like a devouring monster, 
looking to eat us alive, right? And early in our liturgy, when we get to Pascha, you're going to you're going to hear about Christ going into the belly of the beast of the monster and basically coming out of the belly of the monster, like ripping out and destroying Satan or putting him in chains. Um, Satan lies, and what does he offer? What what does he say? You can be like who? God, God, right? You're going to be able to become like God. So Eve is intrigued. What does it say? She's. It's basically like there's a spark on her eyes. Like this is really attractive. This idea. Like I, I think I will eat this because. What? I want to be like God. Uh, she then gets Adam, and then they eat. And what is immediately what happens after they eat? They feel ashamed. Their eyes are open. They suddenly see. Right. They've received knowledge. That was, as Jeremy was talking about, the way that the Greek fathers talk about this is that they were basically like kids. Uh, a lot of the ways that people tell this story is it's kind of like they were already full-grown adults who had all of their wits about them, and then they just, like, there's this brazenness of, like, I'm going to go and be God, as opposed to this, like, they were tricked. They were, like, uh, the, the fleshly aspect of the tree, like the, the, the lust of the eyes, Right, and then the lust of the flesh and the pride of life, what First John talks about later. This is what grabs them, uh, and they want to become. They want to become autonomous. They want to become their own. They don't. They want to basically move away from God. So what happens is they realize they're naked. They realize that they're creatures. They realize that they're bodied. Right, uh, and this is where when God comes. They're ashamed, they hide, and they start to cover themselves. They start to make excuses. What is Adam's excuse? Is pretty stereotypical. She made me do it. She made me do it, right? <laughs> well, the woman you gave me made me do it. Not just she made me do it. The woman. You, so he blames God for having listened to her who had listened to the snake, right? So you can see all of this. This is a breakdown of trust in God, right? This is a breakdown of instead of God, we want. The, to be God or act like God without the path that he has given to us. And it's because we're attracted to the world and what the world can offer us. Satan is in there too. Uh, this always, you know, feeding us little lines and saying like, I think if I remember correctly, like he changes like a letter. <laughs> like He says, that's not what God said. And he just like, tiny little change. This is what God said. I'm like, that's not actually what God said. So... What we have with Adam and Eve and the fall, as it were, the first death, they, what happens to them? They're kicked out of the garden, right? Uh, in many ways, the fathers, what they'll see is this. This was actually a, um, a mercy to them and a grace to them because they have now moved away from communion with God. Our life, our immortality that we have is not something we have innate. It is something that we have because of God, because we're creatures. Without God, we're nothing. Just right on just that plain level. Uh, we can't sustain our existence. So when we move away from him, this is basically our understanding what sin is. When we move away from him, when we decide that the world offers us something that is better than what God has offered to us, uh, then we are moving away from him. We're not moving into communion with him. We're moving into communion with ourselves. And, the, and so this just pattern... What happens with Cain and Abel? Does anyone remember the story of Cain and Abel? I'm going to tie this all back to the liturgy. Don't worry. Cain and Abel. You mean the, the sacrifice of Cain yeah. not being... Yes. Given well, with an impure heart, not the right intention. 
Right. So it, it sounds, again, it sounds, if you just read it on the, te the text, and there's some who teach it like this, uh, why didn't Cain give what he was supposed to give? Like, he offered what he was supposed to offer. Didn't it say that sin is crouching at his door waiting to devour him? Yes. And that, is that before he killed Abel? Yeah, yes, that's, yeah. The, the reality of uh, him, uh, the state of his heart is what the fathers talk about. It doesn't say it explicitly, but it seems, but why else would God not be okay with the sacrifice? Right, right. It's the state of his heart. He doesn't really want to give what is best to God. He wants to keep some on the side. I mean, this is just a theme throughout all of the scriptures. The other thing about what's happening with Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and all of this is Adam and Eve, wh where were they placed? They were placed in a garden, right? When you think of garden, what do you think of a, as a garden? Like an English garden, a French garden, something like this, right? You, you need to think, have anyone, I think it was, what, what was it? The Scholastic Readers, what was that? The thing that we'd get when... I mean, when I was a kid, I shouldn't say when we were as a kid because everybody's different ages in here. <laughs> but it's like the seven wonders of the ancient world. Does anyone remember what Babylon's? Babylon, yeah. The Hating Gardens. Okay. Yeah. That was a temple, right? When you think of garden in Genesis, what God put them in, and this is very clear if you're looking at the Hebrew and throughout why the temple looks the way it does, uh, why there um, uh, is all of this uh, Garden of Eden stuff in the temple is because the Garden of Eden is a temple. It is a garden temple. And so when Adam and Eve are put there, they are made, what, what are the commands given to them, right? Like, tend the garden, right? Basically, worship, <laughs> tend this place. So what happens is when they're put out of the temple in the garden, this is when you get to the Tower of Babel. What are they building? A ziggurat. A ziggurat. What is a ziggurat? It's a temple. It's a, man it's a temple. mountain with a garden at the top. Yeah, it's a mountain with a garden at the top, right? So what you get, this is stuff if you're thinking, if you're just reading the text, you need help with the tradition. <laughs> you need to be able to know the Hebrew, you need to know the Semitic context, you need the tradition of interpreting this. And it's all like, why does our candelabra look like it's a tree? Because it's supposed to look like a tree. <laughs> why? Because it's supposed to look like the, gar like the tree in the garden, right? Why does the cross very often have uh, fruit coming out of it, or it like, looks like it's a tree? There's an ancient tradition that uh, where the tree of the garden uh, 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 in Eden is uh, a tree that is related to the tree of Golgotha that Christ was. And you'll see icons where you have the skull of Adam underneath and the blood coming down from Christ to redeem Adam. Because they see those, it's not just like this idea, they literally, they literally see them connected to each other, okay? So, what is the Tower of Babel? It is the repetition of the sin of Eve. Instead of God, we're going to get together and we're going to build ourselves up into, and we're going to get back up to heaven, and we're going to storm heaven, basically, right? So, this whole, why am I talking about this? This just repeats itself over and over again. Instead of the correct worship that is given, I'm going to assert myself. This is what Saul does, right? He's supposed to... Sacrifice. Samuel's supposed to sacrifice. Saul says, no, 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 I'm going to do this myself. Like, the king is not supposed to sacrifice. That's the priest's job, right? There's this constant subversion uh, throughout. If you just look and read through Genesis, it's just repetition of the same thing. And it always ends with death. And it always ends with division. And it always ends with alienation from God and then from each other. Why does the flood happen? Why does the flood happen? Because what does God see on the earth? It's just sin and death. And killing humans have just gone 
So he wants to start over again, and he needs to start over again, and you basically start off with another Garden of Eden. Except as soon as it starts off, then we have sin. Okay, okay, you get the picture. So all of this, this kingdom is God trying to establish his kingdom. He knows from the very beginning, right? This is the promise that he gives once Adam and Eve. They're given curses, uh, and but there's also a promise that is attached, right? Like the snake that bit your, your foot. This is my way of talking about it. One day you're going to crush the head of the serpent, right? Uh, there is uh, a promise that God is going to deliver humans from the death and the sin that they've got themselves into the mess of. This is why he calls Abraham. This is why then you have the patriarchs. It's because he's got to start, and it has to be specific so that Christ can come into the world. Because when God is going to come to the world, it has to be Mary. It has to be a particular person. It cannot just be like all the ancient, like, Greco-Roman gods or something where they just kind of like randomly appear or they like have a different avatar that they're going to appear in a shape of. That's not necessarily Greco-Roman but other cultures, right? For God, that means he has to, and this is what Israel, this is why the patriarchs, why then he uh, leads them to Egypt, delivers them from Egypt, gives them the law, gives them temple worship. All of this is necessary in order to understand who Jesus Christ is. Uh, This is why we, um, uh, if we're, I don't want to go into too great detail. I have, if you want, I have done uh, a lot of lectures from years ago now, uh, kind of flushing this out a little bit. But all of this is God's attempt to try to create a people, right? A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people that know God and act and live the way God wanted them to live. The problem is Israel never did this. Israel always failed. Uh, as soon as they, you know, they get a king and they take the, the land and then like there's sin immediately, right? So God, through the prophet, starts promising that he's going to bring uh, a king who will put things right. It's almost like you can start thinking of like Star Wars, like all, all of these like modern stories that are all based off this idea. We're looking for the Messiah, right? Throughout the messianic prophecies, there's one uh, thread of messianic prophecies that when uh, God, the Messiah, comes, uh, it is going to be a return to the Garden of Eden, right? Let me read you this from the book of Isaiah. The Almighty Yahweh will prepare for all the nations, so there's already like, I'm preparing not just for Israel, but for everyone, On this mountain, a banquet of rich foods, a banquet of preserved wines, of rich foods, and uh, even more refined wines. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering that is over all peoples, even the covering woven on all the nations, because he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord Yahweh will wipe away the clean of the tears from upon all faces, and the shame of his people he removed from upon all the earth, for Yahweh has spoken." What Christ comes, uh, right, there's all these uh, in times when he's sitting at table, uh, basically at a feast, and he is being criticized, but with his advent, we have the coming of the kingdom, right? What does he begin preaching as soon as he starts preaching? Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? He is embodying, he is bringing the kingdom. So when we in the divine liturgy are invoking, uh, blessed is the kingdom of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
we, in many ways, and then when we get into the antiphons, we are bringing, have in mind the whole history of Israel, that we are going back and we have, through Christ, received the kingdom that is in Christ, that the, the lordship, the kingdom of God dwells, and then we have access to that kingdom. You and I, uh, through baptism, are able to call on the Heavenly Father. So the liturgy is basically us entering into and celebrating the fact that we are in the kingdom, that we are straining towards the kingdom. Uh, this is why the divine liturgy uh, is divided up into two parts. What is the first uh, part of the liturgy? If we're going to divide it to try and just two halves, there's two halves. What is the first half? Liturgy of the yes, liturgy of the catechumens or liturgy of the word. So let's go. Let's just kind of walk through the liturgy. <coughs> so blessed is the kingdom of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What is then the first thing that happens in the divine liturgy? Right after that, everyone takes a nap. <laughs> it's called the Great Litany. Now I'll lay me down to sleep. <laughs> it's the Great Litany. In peace, let us pray to the Lord. And then basically, the reason why it's called the Great Litany, maybe you can guess why it's called the Great Litany, because it covers everything, right? We pray for the president. We pray for uh, all sorts of things, right? The abundance of fruit of the earth. It is the Great Litany because we are asking God for all sorts of things, right? This is the introductory thing. And then we enter into the first antiphon. Does anyone know what an antiphon is? Singing. Antiphonal singing. Yes, historically that would have been antiphonal singing. But the first antiphon, what are we singing throughout the beginning of the, the liturgy? Is it just something written by a saint or something? Lord have mercy. Nope. Nope, that's, right. that's later. a psalm, right? We're basically the antiphons are singing psalms, right? Uh, those are punctuated by little litanies, uh, and then after we do the first antiphon, the second antiphon, the second antiphon uh, ends with uh, Only Begotten Son, which is basically kind of like a creedal uh, hymn that was written by Justinian, actually, the Emperor Justinian, uh, which is basically a Christological that we're talking about Jesus Christ, Only Begotten Son, an immortal word of God. The third antiphon is the Beatitudes. Uh, this is also the, the beginning where we're going to have the small entrance. Uh, so with all of this, if you're to look at the antiphons, these are all kind of telling the story of Israel and the life of Israel, right? It is coming from the Old Testament, uh, but it's the looking for and what God does in blessing, right? Uh, he gives food to the hungry. He rescues the perishing. This is who God is. Uh, then we have a Christological confession, and then we're going to have a little entrance. Uh, what happens at the little entrance? The gospel comes out. Does this remind? Has anyone ever been to a synagogue before? They they do a very similar thing with the Torah. The Torah is enshrined. They take the Torah down, and they basically parade it around, and they kiss it as well. Uh, basically, we take the gospel book, and it's just the gospel. It's just the four gospels. It's not the epistles or anything else. It's just the four gospels. Uh, we come out with it, uh, and then it, the entrance is blessed, and then we uh, enter into the altar. So you may be wondering, why this, like, dancing around type thing? 
Have you ever wondered why they just go in circles? All that, why we go in circles? Nobody? Just what you do? That's just what they do to this crazy Orthodox people? <laughs> so historically, we wouldn't have been inside the church. Historically, all those antiphons, uh, we would have been going from station to station. We would have been in like a major city like Constantinople or Rome or Antioch or something like that. And we would have been going through this, the, the streets of the city singing the Psalms as we, with the bishop and the clergy. And then when we enter into the church, the gospel is then taken into the altar and laid on the altar because the gospel would have been going, processing around with us outside. So the things that we're doing are like remnants of what we used to do. When the bishop comes uh, one day, he was here in October. Uh, well, one of the bishops uh, was here in October. Um, does any, was anyone here for that? Remember how he stood out in the middle of the church for all of the antiphons and then at the little entrance, then he went into the altar? So that's the same remnant of where we would have been all outside and then we would have all come into the church and then inside. So what happens after the little entrance? It's a bunch of songs sung. Uh, this is where you would have uh, hymns for the day or the feast. Uh, then you would have uh, the thrice holy hymn. Does anyone know what the Jasagian hymn is? You're doing this in your morning and evening prayers. Holy God, holy mighty, holy mortal, have mercy on us. This then basically segues into the Brachimenon, the epistle, the gospel, and here we preach after the gospel. As I was saying in, in the homily this morning, the fathers put a lot of emphasis. It's not like if some of you are coming from a low church Protestant background, what the thing about orthodoxy that is so different is that we put an emphasis on communion more than we do with the sermon. Uh, that's, that's not factually true. The orthodox church has always put uh, emphasis on the sermon and emphasis on the reading of scripture. Uh, it's just when you're coming from a low church background where the sermon is 45 minutes to an hour long, maybe. Uh, it's a very different experience when you come in. Uh, I actually, for probably Orthodox time, actually preach long. <laughs> uh, a lot of Orthodox priests will preach for like seven, eight minutes. I'm around 14, 15 minutes. I only know that because I have the recorder. It's not that I'm like sitting there timing myself. Uh, so the reality, if you're reading some Chrysostom's homilies, he would go on for a long time. I think he'd go on for an hour or so at least. So you would feel more comfortable if you're coming from that background. Except the church <laughs> service would have been more like you're going to a Pentecostal service that is going, going on for three or four hours, right? Um, so what you have after the gospel, uh, what happens after the gospel? Does anyone remember? Everyone adjusts and try like stretches their back and stands up, and then we start a litany. I kind of call it a bridge of litanies, right? We do another one that's called a fervent supplication, which has names attached to it instead of kind of general. It's a little bit more specific prayers, and then we do the prayer for the catechumens here at St. Anne's. We have the practice with the catechumens. So if, they, if you've been enrolled in the catechumen coming up, uh, I might have to start because we have enough. We had to do this last year that I just kind of come out and just do this instead of like everybody's head because of just timing of things and there's a lot of you and then uh, et cetera. But um, the prayer for the catechumens and we have two prayers and then we're into the true book hymn. What is the true book hymn? 
the title. Set aside all earthly yeah. cares. Yes, let us lay aside all earthly cares. Why are we supposed to lay aside all earthly cares? Because we're in the divine throne room of God. We, because Christ is coming, right? Christ is coming. Uh, this is why we are in that hymn we are talking about being with or like that we're singing like the angels because we're in the divine throne room. So we join the holy, holy, holy of the angels, right? This is Isaiah. This is, right? This, this is what we are doing in worship. Yes. Is that the point of the second half? So the second half is the liturgy of the faithful or the liturgy of, what is the word that uh, Hopko used here? Uh, I would say also the liturgy of the altar, where instead of the readings being the focus, we're now focused on the bread and the wine and the invocation of the Holy Spirit. So uh, let's go ahead. We have the great entrance uh, during the Shrubic hymn, and then we have some litanies, uh, and then we have um, the Nicene Creed. Why? Do we do the Nicene Creed here? Why don't we do the Nicene Creed earlier? Does anyone hazard a guess as to why we're so deep into the service that we do the Creed here? Because the catechumens have supposedly departed? That, that is part of the reason. Historically, the catechumens would have been escorted out of the church. They've been kicked out of the church. By historically, I mean like the first 400 or 500 years. It has not been that way. There are some churches in North America that have revived some aspect, and what they do is they have a catechist take them to another part, and they basically do catechism while everyone is doing the liturgy of the faithful. Uh, I, I don't know where in the world we would put you. Like, I don't know where that would work. So, uh, the creed is also, we are reciting what our basic belief is, right? This is the symbol of faith, that we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, that we believe in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, and that we believe in the Holy Spirit. Right? All those are the three basic articles of the Creed. We're going to go into more uh, detail about the Creed uh, later on in this class. Uh, we're basically doing that basic confession of faith, and then we're entering into the anaphora. Does anyone remember what, out of the readings, what the word anaphora means? Is everybody doing the readings? Yeah? But I'm asking like one question out of like 40 or 50 pages, right? Does that have to do something with the bread? No, that's a good guess. Anybody? What is, let's, do, let's break it down in the Greek. Uh, what is Greek for a resurrection? Does anyone remember? Anastasis, right? Anna means anastasis in greek literally means rise up again stand up again so anaphora means basically to give back again right so we uh are giving back what christ has given to us and in giving it back he blesses and then he receives the gift that he gifted to us and then he gives it back to us if you follow right <laughs> the offerer is the offered who offers it back to the one who's offering it Right, bread and wine. You and I didn't make that. I mean, we we added our spin on it by like making it into bread, taking wheat and taking grapes, and then making wine out of it. But you and I didn't make wheat. You and I did not make grapes. 
These are all gifted to us. Our entire existence, we're going back to Adam and Eve, right? Our entire existence has been gifted to us. What have we done with this gift? Uh, Father Alexander Schmoon, at the beginning of his book, For the Life of the World, um, talks about uh, Feuerbach, who says you are what you eat. Like, uh, and he says, well, we eat the Eucharist. We eat Thanksgiving. Uh, we uh, believe in a God who has gifted us our very essence and reality. And in living in Thanksgiving, we offer to him our life and everything. So we're going to look at the anaphora and think about what the very center of the liturgy is uh, in our ascent uh, and Christ's descent by the power of the Holy Spirit uh, to us. So uh, let's take a look at this page. We're going to take 15 minutes here. Okay. <clears throat> This says priest, but the de since we have a deacon, the deacon says, Let us stand right, let us stand with fear, let us attend that we may offer the holy oblation and peace, and the people sing a mercy of peace, a sacrifice of praise. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is where the priest turns around from the altar and gives the blessing to everyone, and the people say, with your spirit, and then the priest says, let us lift up our hearts. What, why... Can you think of somewhere in scripture where the priest says, let us lift up our hearts? Do you want one as well? You can read it. Can you want anything? <laughs> I have more copies if people want more copies. Think of Colossians and Ephesians. Right? Where we are told to put our hearts on high. Right? There is throughout, and this... And if you are familiar with this, if you are used to a traditional Lutheran, uh, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, the Roman Mass, guess what? Same words. This is like one of those core in the like Christian liturgy throughout the entire East, West, whatever. It is, let us lift up our hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord. Uh, it is meet and right to worship the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one in essence and undivided. Uh, this is our entrance into... Uh, and giving thanks to the triune God who has made all things for us and we are now lifting our hearts to be with him. As it, it is rhyming with the hymn that we had just sung. Let us lay aside all earthly cares. Uh, let us enter into the throne of Christ and let us worship him without... Uh, one of the secret prayers the priest says is no one who um, basically is at overly attached to the flesh can approach God, right? It is meet and right to sing to thee, to bless thee, to praise thee, to give thanks to thee, and to worship thee in every place of thy dominion. For thou art God ineffable, inconceivable, invisible, incomprehensible, ever existing and eternally the same, thou and thine only begotten Son and thy Holy Spirit. Who is this prayer addressed to? The Father. I don't know if you're thinking throughout this. I think typically we think it's the sun, because as Christians, we're thinking that we're always focused on the sun. The entire anaphora is to the Father. Why is that the case? Because we're offering up Christ. Because we're offering up Christ. We are able to enter into the throne room because of. Christ, right? This is the book of Hebrews. This is, he is the one, if we go back to Adam and Eve, and we go back to David, 
or we go back to Solomon, we go back to Abraham, like we go back to all the, like, and they were all, there might be a man after God's own heart, but they, they all failed, right? Christ is the only one who did everything according to the way that Adam should have done it. That's why Paul talks about him as the second Adam. So we are able to actually enter into behind the veil to access God the Father because the Son has done all things according to the way that things were supposed to be done. So this is why, and we'll get there in a minute, uh, we'll also talk about some Trinity stuff here a little bit. It's really hard to do catechesis because everything is tied together. <laughs> and if I was trying to be like, I wish I could just start with this, and then it just goes here. But as soon as we start talking about this, then I have to talk about this, and then I have to talk about this. We are being brought into the very triune life, right? Like that is what Christ offers to us, is a relationship with the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. So when we are praying to the Father, we are praying uh, in Christ to the Father by the Holy Spirit. Right? So the very anaphora where we are calling down the Holy Spirit, that's what we're asking uh, to transform this bread and wine. From the very beginning, we're going to address God the Father. As why the ineffable, the inconceivable, the incomprehensible. Uh, I almost thought that I misspoke with inconceivable. I couldn't get uh, Princess Bride out of my head. <laughs> my kids are on a really big Princess Bride kick right now. <laughs> they have so many lines memorized, and they like can go back and forth. Uh, if you haven't seen Princess Bride, <laughs> so let's continue. That was who brought us from non-existence into being, and when we had fallen away, didst raise us up again, and didst not cease to do all things until thou hast brought us up to heaven and hast endowed us with thy kingdom, which is to come. So we see here enshrined in the, the our prayer of who God is and who we are is we're saying like we. <laughs> We come from nothing, and you have given us everything. And because we are who we are, and our will is not steady, we constantly want to go back to the nothing. We don't really want God. We really like the sweet bits that aren't really going to feed us, right? We're like little toddlers who won't eat their green beans or something, right? It's just this con like, we, but God the Father, in sending the Son and the Holy Spirit for us, is always the God who is pursuing us, is always the God who is saying, nope, you're, you're falling off into nothingness and I'm going to grab you. This is why the basic heart of the gospel is Christ coming in the flesh, but then he goes into all of our existence by going into death itself, by dying. Because that's where we are going and heading towards, and he has to save us from that. For all these things we give thanks to thee and to thine only begotten Son and to thy Holy Spirit. For all things which we know and which we know not, whether manifest or unseen. One of the greatest things about faith, or the challenges of faith, is that uh, faith has a whole lot of room for uh, not knowing things. Uh, we, our faith is not, faith itself is not that I get a bunch of ideas and I have a bunch of ideas about God, but it's trust in God himself no matter what happens, we're going to. So he manifests himself or does not manifest himself. He gives, and I don't fully understand why he gives and why he takes, but blessed be the name of the Lord, right? Job, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Father, I heard that the 
we, when we hear th- faith, we always think of like believing in something, like I believe in God, like I believe in Santa Claus or something. But <laughs> I always heard that the more proper translation was faithfulness, yes, like fidelity. I like to say trust. Yeah. Right, because yeah. we have we have we like to etherealize and make a lot of church words into other words, like yeah. make it into something else that is not actually in the Greek or what the tradition would say it is. Right. Right, like repentance. Most of us, to think of repentance, would like I changed my idea about something. Like, yeah. Repentance means like you bear fruit worthy of repentance. To use the language of scripture, your life actually shows your repentance. It's not like a oh yeah, and then you move on with your life. There, there's something as we saw in Zacchaeus, right? Like, half is goods, and then restoring full, fourfold. So, we thank thee for this liturgy which thou hast found worthy to accept out of our hands. Though there stand by thee thousands of archangels and hosts of angels, the cherubim, here we are again with, uh, with all of the angels, the cherubim, the seraphim, six-winged mini-eyes who are aloft, born in the pinions, singing the triumphant hymn, shouting, proclaiming, and saying. And then this is where the people themselves then sing like the angels. Holy, 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 Lord of Sabaoth, heaven and earth are full of thy glory, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Where, where, do, where do you find blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord? The triumphal entry, which is quoted from the Psalms, right? So this is one of those Christ is about to enter. So we are singing like the little kids did at the triumphal entry, but also we're with the angels. With these blessed powers, this means with the angels, O Master who lovest mankind, we also cry loud and say, Holy art thou and thine only begotten Son of the Holy Spirit. Holy art thou and all holy and magnificent is thy glory. Who has so loved the world to give thine only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life? Who, when he had come and fulfilled all the dispensation for us, in the night in which he was given up? Let me pause right there. What does it mean that he fulfilled all the dispensation for us? Are we dispensationalists? No. <laughs> <laughs> if you know what that means, then. Because he fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the law, right? What were you going to say? He what? Yes. He does all things for our salvation. Or the way that the fathers will talk about this, the economy of salvation. Not the economy as in like the GDP, but the economia, which is like the way to run the household, right? Uh, that is what the ancient Greek word. So Christ has done all the work that he needed to do for us. Uh, and on that night in which he gave himself up, and I like this because this is a very Pauline thing that does here, or rather gave himself up for the life of the world. There's different places where Paul is saying something, and he wants to emphasize like the God view of it, but then he'll also say, or or the man view, or like he'll start with the man view, and then he'll kind of say, or rather, and the, like, we should say it like this too. So it is God, uh, in which he was given up, right? That he was, they were going to kill him. But rather, it's not that we were going to kill him or give him up, but he, being God, gave himself up for the life of the world. He took bread in his holy, pure, and blameless hands, and we had given thanks and blessed it and hallowed it and broken it. He gave it to his holy disciples and apostles, saying, and this is where then we have the words of institution that are taken from the Gospels. Ray Gregory, I feel like you have something to say. No. Okay. No, <laughs> No, you're doing fine. Okay. Thank, thank you. <laughs> uh, this is where uh, the priest uh, is just pointed to and saying, this is my body and this is my blood. 
And then we, uh, the priest says this prayer, remembering this saving commandment. What is the saving commandment that we're remembering? Probably don't think like this, but when he says, take, eat, this is my body, take, drink, those are commandments given to us, right? So remembering the saving commandment that when in the night that we should eat and drink, right, him, this is a commandment given to us. We remember the same commandment and all those things which have come to pass for us. And no, look, follow this closely. We're supposed to remember all the things that have come to pass for us. The cross, the tomb, the resurrection, the third day, the ascension into heaven, the sitting at the right hand, and the second and glorious coming. Is anything odd to you about that? Well, you're remembering something that hasn't yeah. You're remembering something that hasn't happened. What has not happened? Second the second and glorious coming. What is going on there? Is that an editorial issue? <laughs> saying it already has happened, sort of outside of time, maybe. I don't know. Right? Yeah. Kathleen is saying that it's already happened outside of time. Aaron is saying it was prophesied. Any other guesses or. It's a promise. I like all of these things have aspect of what is going on, right? We remember the future. It is a foregone conclusion that Christ is coming again, and we are remembering that fact, right? We are remembering a truth that is going to happen to us, and that uh, he's also, in a way, the second coming is kind of happening. An eschatological event is happening because Christ himself is coming to us in the bread and the wine. So the whole reality of, and there's this timelessness too, like we in joining that banquet, who's at this banquet table with us? We're gonna hit this in a little bit. Everybody else who's followed, like the, the prophets, the apostles, preachers, evangelists, martyrs, confessors, ascetics, every righteous spirit made perfect in faith, right? Yeah. Especially the most holy thing like, this is where we are we are entering into and we are going to sup with all of the faithful have gone on before us. This is part of the whole worship of what is happening, right? The liturgy is where we get to participate in heaven. Where Christ himself, uh, I mentioned Sinai, when God, you probably don't remember this. You remember something like probably Ten, maybe uh, Charleston Heston and like Ten Commandments, that movie? Is it was Ten Commandments is the name of the movie, right? Mm -hmm. uh, what happens though before all that? Moses goes up with the elders up on the side of the mountain. He tells everyone in the camp, don't come up the side of the mountain, right? He says, everybody fast from marital relations because we were, do we're doing some serious business here because we're going to go encounter God. And then they go up on the side of the mountain and it says they sit down and have a meal with God. That's probably not what you remember from Sunday school because you kind of go like, and then Moses was given the Ten Commandments and then they did silly stuff with the golden calf down there and then, you know, he got mad and blah, blah, right? All the like veggie tales level stuff. There's a <laughs> lot of stuff going on in Exodus uh, that is still in, like ingrained in how we do things, right? There is, we are going to sit down and have a meal with God and God is the host, he's the meal. <laughs> And we're the, he's the reason why we're there. It's kind of like Jesus inviting himself over to the house of Zacchaeus. It's like, uh, I am now going to give you everything. And all you have to do is 
just give thanks and give it back. That's why it's called the Eucharist. We have received everything. What, what we understand, what we don't understand, uh, and we have been given this commandment to remember the sacrifice of Christ, his life, death, burial, resurrection, sitting on the right hand of God the Father, and his second and glorious coming, right? This is all that we're participating in because we become communicants of the kingdom. We become communicants of Christ. Father, yes. I want to just point out on the on the on the page before we see the same thing uh, and and didst not cease to do all things until thou hast brought us up to heaven and endowed us with thy kingdom which is to come. You know that's that's another instance where we're we're we're, we're thanking God for what what uh, what has essentially already occurred. That is constantly occurring, right? Yeah, that, like that, that, that you and I need to be saved from the pits of despair. We need to be saved from the pits, period. Uh, we need to be saved from the abyss. Christ needs to come into whatever death and darkness we've gotten ourselves into the past six days uh, in order to save us. Right? Yes. I just happened to listen to this on a podcast recently, but didn't when, when Moses come back down from the mountain, that's how he designed the tent or the tabernacle by what he saw. Yes. Up there. So, so Gregor Nyssa, if you the life of Moses, and then we'll, we'll have to end. I'll have to pick up the end of this. The life of Moses, written by Saint Gregor Nyssa. What does uh, what does Moses actually see? He sees Christ enthroned. The, all the tabernacle, all symbols and things for us to understand. Why is it the color red? Because the blood of Christ. Like that's how he reads all of that. The reason why the tabernacle is is because. Moses sees Jesus. Isaiah sees Jesus. That's who they're seeing. Yes? I'd say that there's a reason why it's covered with skins. It's meant to be a representation of a person dwelt by God. So th this is all through the tradition as well. What you have is we worship God. There, there's three altars. There's the altar in heaven, there's the altar here, and then there's the altar within you. And they're supposed to line up, right? that my offering is then matched with the offering that is here, but then is also matched with the offering that is the eternal offering that the Son is giving to the Father in heaven. Because for you and I to be truly alive is for us to be offering ourselves to the Father just like the Son, to die, to die the death that he died in all the little ways that we need to die. Which basically means have our desire and our love in the right way that it's supposed to be, going back to Adam and Eve, right? We don't accept the lie, we need God. We need to obey him. We need to obey his commandments. And that is where we'll find life. We should probably stop there. And then we're coming, we'll come back uh, to talk about the invocation of the Holy Spirit. I'm trying to remember what next topic is. You have to say to thine own of thine own. You can't go with that. <laughs> yes, we, I, I will. Does anyone have a... I think I gave away my last... I'll put it up on my phone. You have it? Got it. Look at you. I put, I have everything in here. Look at you. Alright, next week says spirituality. Great, this fits, okay? <laughs> uh, we'll continue to finish the anaphora section, and then we'll start hitting some uh, aspects of orthodox spirituality uh, off of that. And then the week after that, 
we'll do uh, saints and icons of hymnody as theology. Uh, we uh, cl- soon I'm going to basically kind of give you a introduction to Lent because we are also I don't have that outlined here, but I'm going to take some time on one of, in one of these classes to kind of lay out Lent and what is happening and the services. Not that I'm going to go into great detail, kind of like when I'm walking through Divine Liturgy here, so that you have an idea of what's coming up with Lent. Okay? All right. Let's close, and if anyone has any questions afterwards, we can. Lord, now let us thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. From mine eyes I have seen thy salvation, which thou shalt prepare before the face of all people, a light to enlighten the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Sorry, we'll